The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Today, it's a special programme looking at the entertainment industry, theatres, opera, ballet, and whether or not it can get back uh, to normal or some form of normal after all the hiatus there's been, of course, during the virus lockdown, because it has been, Seb, a really very difficult time for this industry. Uh, yeah, very much so. We're going to dig into all of that throughout the programme. We're going to speak to Giles Watley and the Conservative MP, who used to be an actor, so he knows all about this. And later on, we're going to speak to Stuart Murphy, who is the CEO of the English National Opera as well. So a wide variety of voices. We should give you a little update on where we are with the coronavirus as well. Boris Johnson urging people to act responsibly as pubs in England prepare to reopen. That's tomorrow. He's warning that he'll act to close parts of the economy if the virus gets out of control. It's not just pubs, though, of course. Restaurants, hotels, cinemas, hairdressers, all of this opening their doors to a public who are being intrigued to see how they react, to be honest, because we were speaking to Ipsos Mori yesterday, Ben Page, telling us a lot of people still very nervous about going out. Yeah, that does seem to be a strong suggestion. Not everyone is exactly trusting of the situation or perhaps the government's medical knowledge. Who knows? Meanwhile, the Shadow Chancellor, Labour's Annalisa Dodds, is also today going to deliver her first major speech in which she'll set out four tests for the Chancellor Rishi Sunak's statement, which is coming next week. She's going to argue for more targeted economic support to prevent job losses in the wake of the virus, saying job retention schemes must be extended in areas hit by local lockdowns. Yeah, she's been calling for a long time for a full emergency summer budget as well from the government. But let's move on to the main topic of today's special, which, as you say, is the arts, cultural institutions. I think it's fair to say among the sectors that have been worst hit by the pandemic, you've got theatres, concert halls, museums, galleries. They've all come under crippling financial pressure. Uh, to name just one, the South Bank Centre in London, one of the country's leading arts hubs, has warned it could close until April next year at the earliest, but then the region's suffering as well. Southampton's Nuffield Theatres, where I enjoyed many a production as a child, closing permanently, sadly, and then the Norwich Theatre as well, warning of huge job losses. So it's yeah. widespread this. 
theatres going dark always a terrifying thought. Well, those that survive have been forced to rethink how they provide their offerings, something that can be enjoyed at home, perhaps, or at a safe distance, both audiences and performers. Well, joining us now is Giles Watling, Conservative MP for Clacton, before entering Parliament. Of course, he was an actor, director and theatre manager. Giles, welcome to the programme. Thank you for being with us. Now, you've been warning that the arts sector is weeks from oblivion. You're lobbying the government to step in. What do you want them to do? Well, it's beginning to collapse like a pack of cards right now. I mean, as you said, uh, some theatres are closing. The Nuffield Theatre, which I played in, I think, 1974, first time, Southampton Nuffield, uh, a superb little venue uh, out there, sort of kind of amongst the woods in Southampton, closed, probably permanently, never to reopen again. And and this is beginning to happen uh, like uh, sort of dominoes falling over across the country. And and, uh, as Julian Bird of Salt said, this is, Rome is burning. This is happening now. We're going to lose this massive cultural offer, which is not just for the mental health community centres and all of that around the country, but we export it to the world. It exports British values to the world. And I personally have been to many corners of the world, from Beijing to Broadway, if you like, uh, doing exactly that. People come and see what we do. They get the British values, the British way of life. And on the back of that, we sell the UK PLC to the world. So we sell, you know, I don't know, Tetley Tea to, to, to the Chinese or something on the back of the theatre offer. And we've been doing it since the time of Shakespeare. This is the biggest crisis the theatre has ever seen. And we've got to do something about it. And very soon. So what exactly are you calling for Oliver Dowden to do here to avoid this oblivion that you've mentioned? OK, well, there, there, there are two major thrusts. The first thing is we, we need an emergency rescue fund set up. We need, we need a, a, a pile of cash. Now, I, I cannot tell you exactly what sort of figure that would be. That needs to be worked out. But we need an emergency rescue fund so that those theatres which are facing permanent closure, because you, you've got to bear in mind that even though they're not running, there's zero income, there's nothing coming through the doors, they still need to be cleaned, they still need to be maintained, there are rapes and all the other bills that go with it. And, and these are big organisations. Uh, and we need an emergency rescue fund to stop the actual bricks and mortar, the fabrics closing. The other thing I would ask for, and would ask for really quickly, which is a timeline, some idea of when we can get these things back in action. Now, I understand, because of the nature of theatre and, and the fact that it is a shared experience and a unique experience, that it's going to be really hard to do social distancing. Um, but we've got to have some form of that. And theatres, we are creative people after all in uh, the uh, theatrical sector. Uh, and we've got to come up with some form of social distancing that will work. But because theatres, particularly in the provinces and the regions, live so hand-to-mouth, they, the, the, the idea of social distancing doesn't work financially. So we'll need a timeline to say when we can start doing that because we're going to lose the pantomime season. We're in danger. Some, some have already gone. We're in danger of losing the pantomime season. The pantomimes give up to 80% of the theatre's income for the year. This is going to be devastating if all the pantomimes close all over the country. Apart from the fact that it's somewhere that mums and dads and kids love to go every Christmas. But the pantomime season, August is the latest, the very latest. Uh, And then we're just going to lose the entire section. So we need a timing and we need an emergency rescue fund. Well, Charles, I mean, let's get go back if we can to one of the things you mentioned there about the ways you could actually do something with the theatre it's all very well talking about ways of keeping it going until we can do something but maybe there are things in the interim social distancing still important uh, medical evidence suggesting when people sing or shout or make a loud noise with their mouths that's a, a risky moment particularly inside i mean actually 
with, from your experience as an actor, can you think of ways in which theatre could still actually happen? Well, yeah, I mean, there was, of course, uh, promenade theatre. Uh, you know, people did outside theatre. And, um, in fact, I, I got involved in some down here in Little Printon-on-Sea, you know, where we took people from venue to venue around the town uh, in promenade theatre. But you're in the open air, and people could socially distance around that. That could be a possibility. This doesn't deal with the fabric of the theatres, of course. But also, you know, you've got somebody like Andrew Lloyd Webber, who is suggesting he's going to be opening uh, the Palladium uh, in, in a socially distanced way. So he's only going to sell half the tickets of the Palladium. But that's a 2,000-seat theatre. So he'll be able to sell 1,000 seats and at a slightly raised price, and possibly it might be economically viable. But this doesn't help the theatres, like the little theatre I used to run, the Sprint and Summer Theatre, for instance, um, which you need 85 87% attendance to make it even tick. So uh, you can't have half the audience there. It's only got 200 and whatever seats. So um, it, it's very difficult to balance this. So other ways of doing theatre, well, it was interesting. I did Radio 4's Long View the other day, and we were talking about the Great Plague of 1603, when the theatres closed for 14 months. And William Shakespeare et al. and Burbage, uh, they set off and went on a tour of the country where the plague wasn't. And when the plague took up with them, they found other ways of doing it. And we can creatively do that these days. Um, there, there, there can be, uh, be social isolation in theatre. But here's the point. What if the social isolation uh, meant that the theatres could operate and the government picked up the slack so that they didn't have to close? That would be a good way forward. But I need to have these discussions, and I have been having these discussions with Oliver Dowden, yeah. who is a sympathetic ear, but of course he's got to talk to Rishi, and we all understand that everybody in this country right now is out there with their begging bowl out because all sectors are suffering. But I've just got to yeah. say this. We must not forget our cultural offer because it is so often put to one side, and actually it's much more important than people think. Uh, so that's the financial side. Um, on the timeline aspect, how is that realistic when the virus is so unpredictable? I mean, we see it uh, receding in many parts of the country, but at the same time, we get flare-ups in places like Leicester. Yeah, well, that, now when we're talking about the timeline, we're talking about aims. We're talking about we are aiming to open at such and such a point. Because even if you get that glimmer of hope at the end of the tunnel, people won't shut up so quickly. They'll say, OK, let's hang on. Let's find some sort of, we'll scratch around, find some financing locally just to keep us going because here's this aim at the end of the tunnel. This is what the government's aiming for. They're aiming to give us the chance to reopen at that point and they will hang on. If they have nothing there whatsoever, but it has to be you know, emphasised that it is an aim like all these things because with this virus, as we all know, we've got a tiger by the tail here. We don't know where it's going to pop up or how it's going to work. And we are relying, and listening to what you were saying just before this interview started, we are relying on the great British public being sensible about this and, you know, not saying it's not going to end like VE Day. It's not going to all suddenly be over. We've got to be careful, and we've got to be careful for the foreseeable future. So yeah. we've got to have an aim when we can get back into theatres, but the theatres will have to, rather like the pubs and clubs are doing this weekend, uh, have to think of ways of making it as safe as possible to get back into those venues. Sure. Charles, let me play devil's advocate for a moment and say, even before all this came along, a lot of regional theatre, frankly, was hanging on by its fingernails. I've lost count of the number of, of theatres that have closed for no, no reason other than simply not enough people turning up. I mean, yes, you know, the West End probably could keep going, but actually, isn't this a moment yeah. when a kind of uh, pruning fork comes through and you get rid of what simply doesn't work? Well, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That, that could, could be true. But the point is, and, and you make the point very well, that is the way, the way theatres always be. You know, 
we people who, who get involved in commercial theatre, for instance, if, if you want to put together a tour, it's always a risk. You take, you take a gamble because it is so tight. Those, those percentages are so tight of success or failure. But now with this virus and theatres actually closed, we're not even having the chance to try it out and give it a shot. And that's what this business has always been around. And with, you, know, you meet the most courageous people in show business who, who have an idea, have a spark, and they just want to make it connect with the rest of the populace. And if it works, well, the riches are there. And if it doesn't, they're not. But they, they, so many theatres just about get by. This is killing yeah. them right now. This is killing them. And we're going to have to start from scratch. And here's the point. All those regional and provincial theatres feed the rest of the industry. Your television, yeah. your film, your West End, um, and we lose the regional stuff. We're going to lose a world-leading place in our cultural offer. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. As part of our special, looking at the pandemic's impact on the arts, we can speak to the head of one of Britain's leading cultural institutions. Stuart Murphy, CEO of the English National Opera, joins us. Stuart, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much for being with us. Um, what? Tell us about your plans. What is opera at the ENO actually going to look like when you reopen? So I think there's probably two phases. Uh, first phase is um, in the kind of emergency phase, if you like, uh, we're planning from the 1st of October to have stripped back a stripped-back opera season. So if you kind of imagine Edinburgh Festival meets ENO, um, so on stage, two or three performers, instead of our full orchestra of 70, probably an orchestra of 20, and uh, people spaced out one metre apart. We think with that set-up, we can do probably three performances a week until Christmas um, to about 1,000 people. Um, that would involve staggered entry times coming in through the emergency exits instead of just the main entrance and allowing people to get up if they need to nip to the bathroom or the bar as and when suits them. I think then uh, also um, in that period we're experimenting because we're aware people might be nervous about going in a confined space. So we announced we're going to do the world's first drive-in opera, which, um, which just takes the genre you know, out of the theatre and allows people to have their windows up and have an immersive kind of secret cinema experience in their cars. I think the second phase, the longer-term phase, is, is the fascinating question. You know, this time next year, what will the kind of grand arts that involve huge numbers of people look like? Um, assuming there's not a second peak, which is quite a big assumption, I imagine um, all, the, all the arts companies are kind of going to be financially tender this time next year, and will probably have things that are, are really still quite stripped back. Opera books three years in advance, so um, for opera, you're going to feel the effects of this. Uh, certainly for the next two years, we're assuming 50% of box office, for instance.
Uh, I mean, Stuart, as was my experience when I was uh, at the Ian a couple of weeks before lockdown, uh, a, a big part of the audience, as is always the case with opera and with classical music in general, is that they are older and they are more vulnerable. Are you worried that these people aren't going to feel safe enough to come back even when they're allowed? Totally, Sebastian. I mean, it's, it's a really good point. The average age of um, uh, opera audience is about 70. At ENO, it's 59, with the younger, uh, the youngest of the national opera houses. But still, you're right. Um, not only that, but you know, a third of our audience get a one-hour train journey overground after the performance. And so there's not only within the theatre, but there's also the confined space of travel. But yeah, I mean, we're hugely worried. I think, you know, one, there's several ways we're going to try and uh, deal with that. One way is is to go at the pace of the most nervous customer, if you like. So we've said to people, um, when we get back in the theatre, everyone backstage will have to wear a mask. Even if it doesn't make much medical difference, we think psychologically it will make a huge difference. Um, secondly, all our staff are going to have gloves and probably visors. Again, just to really reassure people that this is a safe environment. I think what we're trying to do as well, building up to a kind of big reopening, if you like, at the start of the next calendar year, is to do these smaller events just so people can get used to a new normal. And I don't know about you two, but um, last weekend it was the first time I kind of properly met friends. We kept our distance and it was odd and awkward. But now that I've done that and I'm familiar with that awkward, then the next time I'll be kind of prepped for it. Um, we're doing a similar thing with staff for what it's worth. We're saying to the whole company, um, next week we're all going to meet in Hyde Park in a socially distanced way, full of masks, you know, covered in masks and gloves, just so that people can get over that initial hurdle and, um, uh, and, and get out without, without a worry. But, you, Sebastian, you're absolutely right. It, it, it's a worry all the opera companies and lots of the theatre organisations are, are concerned about. Stuart, let me pick up on something Basically, basic and practical, really, which is one of the things we know about this disease, is that if people are talking loudly, and I suppose by extension singing, uh, particularly singing opera in a public space, uh, you're projecting from your mouth. I mean, not a pleasant thing to think about, but that's what it is. Um, it's one of the most dangerous things you can do in terms of spreading the virus. And, you know, I take on board your points about social distancing in the, in, in the opera house itself, but even on stage, people singing at each other, uh, it has to be a very dangerous thing. Is it not something that perhaps you should just say, listen, we can't do this in this current environment? You know, it's such a good question. I think the first thing is the science is changing all the time. There have been numerous reports, some of which have been quite contradictory, um, about how far um, the potentially infected spit might travel. In Germany, performers are allowed to be within two metres of one another. In Britain, Public Health England has said they've got to be six metres um, uh, distance from one another. So clearly British spit apparently travels further than German spit. I mean, it, it just doesn't pass the kind of sniff test, that, that difference. I think the second thing is, we're, you know, we're finding out new ways of performing all the time. So um, there's about 20 uh, orchestras and opera houses across the world have started to do socially distanced performances. Um, Teatro, uh, Teatro, um, sorry, Teatro Real in Madrid did a socially distanced performance of Traviata this week. They um, distanced everyone on the stage. And obviously with opera, you're several metres away from the main singer, even if you're on the front row. If you're at the back of the balcony, you're 100 metres away. I think the third thing is there's new research that says actually air conditioning might help or might, you know, might help dispel and disperse any airborne bugs. 
there's, you know, we're, we're in constantly shifting sands. I mean, I, I think the option of not doing anything, to me, as a chief exec of a national arts company, doesn't feel like an option. I think the arts are paid to be the imagineers of Britain. So, you know, it's beholden on us, I think, to get out there and reimagine how to bring this art form to people, which is why we've, we're saying driving live is, is one way of doing that. Um, and if that works... It not only is good for a, a COVID world, but actually potentially future-proofs the genre for years to come. So it might be something like secret cinema, where younger audiences are more, um, are more interested in trying out the form because it's a bit cooler, it doesn't have some of the um, sort of social inhibitions that going in an opera house might have. Uh, you know, all, all the time we're trying to, to think hard about how to... Um, uh, experiment and innovate in this period and, and driving live is one attempt at that mm, i've got to say i'm really excited to see what you come out with there uh, and i should preface this next question uh with the fact that i know you guys do a lot in terms of free and uh reduced price tickets for younger people but how do you make sure that if you have to socially distance in a traditional opera house the cost doesn't become prohibitive for people because you have to sell fewer tickets for the same amount of of, of production I mean, when I think about the sort of mathematical, mathematical equation required to put on an opera, um, often the, you know, the cost of an opera can be a, you know, anything from two to five million quid. Um, however, that, that uh, um, assumes that there are 100 people on stage, 100 people in the orchestra, that there are sets that are absolutely enormous, possibly half a million pounds worth of set that can be mechanical. Uh, unlike uh, lots of musicals that have a standing set on the theatre um, stage for several years, you know, operas different would have seven sets in one opera and then the following night a new seven sets. So, um, so what we're saying is, actually, let's just strip back a, a opera to its purest form on stage. Let's do away with the sets, because that's a huge cost. Let's do away with uh, rotating the sets as well, because that's a huge cost. And possibly let's not even have uh, costumes. So what you're going to get, I think, is kind of essence of opera. You get the amazing singers... Um, who are projecting without microphones, you'll get a uh, slimmed-down orchestra. And if you do that in the equation, we think you can probably charge people 20 to 25 quid. I mean, we're lucky, obviously, as, as you'll know, Sebastian, that we're the biggest theatre in the West End, 2,539 seats. So, you know, we're lucky in a sense that we can try this. Uh, you know, my heart breaks for those organisations that have uh, not only restricted seating, um, but also difficult corridors that don't allow a kind of uh, audience flow system that we can do uh, with some imagination we can do at the Coliseum. Stuart, let me ask you about the bottom line in all this. I mean, financially, how, what position are you in? Can you survive? What do you need to survive? Just take us in there. Yeah, so we will survive. Um, of course we'll survive. We're not going to let ENO go under. And, you know, similar to the other arts companies, of course we will get through this somehow. Uh, the question is, I suppose, what are you left with coming out the other end? I mean, the, the bold statistics are we've got two big reserves at ENO. Uh, we burnt through our first reserve within a couple of months. Uh, that was a whopping great reserve because we've announced uh, we've been renting out the Coliseum to musicals over the past few years, and that's paid dividends. So we, we burned through that first reserve. We've now been using the second reserve, which is designated to look after the Coliseum building. And we did that with, um, with the blessing of the Arts Council and the government, who said, look, just keep afloat. 
um, go through what you've got in your accounts, effectively, and, and just keep going. I think that second reserve will run out in mid-October for ENO. I must add that that's, uh, you know, we're in a better position than most. Uh, um, a couple of theatres have already gone under. I think most organisations will feel the pinch um, in September. I mean, really feel the pinch in September. So, you know, the, the question is, yeah. w- what do you do to survive through October? Well, uh, most org- arts organisations are going to have the difficult restructuring conversations in mid-July. Yeah. Because that's the date at which one needs to start conversations in order to have redundancies when furloughing right. finishes. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.